0: Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley.
1: So Jennifer's case, uh, the Jennifer Bastian case, and and to some extent, uh, Michelle Welch, they were kind of the common thread uh, throughout the this book. So you know, you, you hear about them at the beginning, you hear little bits and pieces about them throughout the, the book, as I'm talking about other cases that I was investigating during different times of my career. And then you hear about them again, at the end. And, you know, I think that was a key piece that my agent was really adamant about is like, I, let's, we need to tie this whole book together. We don't want just a collection of cases. We want, you know, how does, we need a string that runs through this whole thing, even though we are talking about a variety of different cases, you know, what's going to link them all together. And so that was, that was those two cases. And, you know, for me, those were cases that had happened when I was a little girl. So the book starts all the way back in my childhood and up until present day.
0: Yeah, well, I, I specifically remember, especially with Cheryl, where, where you were talking about that that's kind of what inspired you to become a detective. And Certainly
1: one of the things, yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because I never, I mean, if anybody asked me, I would always say, you know, if someone would ask me why did I become a detective, I would always say, oh, it was Ted Bundy. You know, it was reading about Ted Bundy. And actually, my next door neighbor, brought she just finished reading my book and she had something interesting to say, which I hadn't ever really thought about, but there were things that I talk about in the book that happened that were very critical things that occurred, or things that really stuck with me, or um, I would call them like seminal moments that occurred in in three different stages of my life, as in three different developmental stages. So you know, childhood, pre-adolescence, and then adolescence, and you know, how does that play into? making that kind of an impact. I, I had never even thought about that. It didn't even occur to me. But, you know, maybe that's something that was a driving force for me that I didn't I could never even articulate or didn't really understand if that makes sense.
0: Wow. Well, let's uh let's get the psychology couch out and we yeah. can Yeah. Yeah. We can discuss the intimate relationships at different <laughs> yeah. different stages of Lindsay Wade's life here. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. No, that's awesome. Well, and and I know, again, in the previous conversations that we've had where, you know, you were talking about those two little girls that were killed in the parks. And how old were you when when that happened?
1: I was 10 and 11.
0: Okay, so you were about the same age as those girls. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm sure you had ridden your bike through those parks and through or similar places. And yeah you know, back when we were kids, it's like, I mean, that kind of stuff just never, it, at least you didn't hear about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you, especially like on a, on a regular basis. And so when you're, when you're growing up in a small community, really, and and not necessarily a small community, but a, and, and a community that's intimate enough where most people know each other, you definitely know all your neighbors there's not so many people piled on top of each other that it's just impossible to, to really, yeah, you know, not get to know a lot of people. You see the same people uh, Mm -hmm. over and over. And you compare that to today and, you know, even, even neighborhoods that used to be fairly spread out and, and, um, I I don't want to say sparse, but at the same time now it's like, my community, well, for example, my community here in Utah, it's like, I I mean, they they can't build the houses fast enough. It's just exploding. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure Tacoma is the same way and has been for years. And, and so, you know, everything changes and I understand that, but at the same time as communities and, and things change, the general feeling of, of that community changes as well. And so when you're thinking about, how something dramatic like that can happen back when you were a kid and the it impact it's, it's got such a major impact on your entire life. It makes sense that that thread would go through all the cases that you ever worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that's brilliant. So, you know, kudos to your, um, you know, your writing and your publisher. Um,
1: yeah.
0: I mean, they, they sound like, um, they sound like pretty <laughs> smart people. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, well, you know, and it's just, those were cases that were always in the back of my mind and so you know i talk about in the book how i might have been investigating a specific case but you know in the back of my mind i would always be asking myself depending on the circumstances like oh could this be the guy like could this be the guy for you know jennifer and michelle's cases so you know they were just i mean i hate to say that that i always had kind of like a mental set of sticky notes in my brain for, you know, different cases that were unsolved, but these two for sure were were cases like that, where if I would hear about something happening, if I would be, in, you know, investigating a case, I would always, you know, again, kind of wonder like, hmm, I wonder if this guy could be good for one of these cases. And for the longest time, it was good for both of these cases, because for the longest, we thought it was the same guy.
0: Nice. Well, let's, uh, let's look at a few of these cases then. Yeah. Any one in particular that, that you want to highlight?
1: Well, um, you know, I think one that's interesting and one that is, it hits on a topic that a lot of people are unaware of. That is the, you know, lack of DNA profiles in, in the CODIS database. And this case really highlights that, that problem. And this is not a Washington state problem. This is a, a national problem. Issue over the past, I don't know, probably seven, eight years now, a lot of states have come to recognize that we have serious problems. We've got huge gaps in our databases, and we've got convicted murderers and rapists that should be in the the DNA database, and they're not there for a variety of reasons. And a lot of these guys are individuals who were convicted prior to a DNA law taking effect. Right. So they're kind of forgotten about because they got convicted back in the 70s or the 80s, really during the golden age of serial killing. And since they were already locked up by the time somebody passed a DNA law in the 90s, nobody really thought maybe we should include these people. Some of these states passed laws and they were not retroactive. So they literally could not collect from these people, even if they wanted to. And then there's other states that just basically ignored the people that were, you know, in custody for long, you know, some of these people died in prison, got executed, died on death row. Some of these people are still in prison today and have been in prison serving life sentences or huge sentences and have never had their, their DNA collected.
0: So, you know, I, I, Sorry to interrupt, but I find that really interesting because, you know, the stats of uh, recidivism and the number of criminals that are out there causing the majority of crime. You know, for example, I I've heard the stat that New York city, for example, the majority of the crime cre- uh, that are, I, I'm pretty sure is New York. It's either New York or Chicago. They were saying there's about 600 people that are doing the majority of the, of the major crime in like these major cities.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It, it's not a huge number. So, you know, when you do catch one of these, say it's a, it's a serial killer, but you don't know that it, he's a, it's usually he. If you don't know that he is an actual serial killer, you think he's just one of the guys that killed a a particular victim. Right. And then, but, but if you don't collect his DNA, then some of these, uh, how many other cases could have never been solved? Right. Uh, That's, uh, and uh, boy, that that needs to be fixed.
1: Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, you can, if you, you know, I was just working on putting together some different cases as examples. And, you know, there are quite a few cases around the country where this has happened. And, you know, law enforcement is spending time and resources investigating these cases to no end. Uh, The families are wondering what's going on and why no progress is being made. Some of these cases have been solved using investigative genetic genealogy, which, you know, that's a great tool, but if the case should have been solved already years earlier, just with a simple CODIS hit, then is that really a good use of time and resources?
0: Oh, um, right. Yeah. You know. I was just at a um, investigative, you know, a, a genealogical DNA conference down in San Diego, and mm-hmm. it's just amazing that the the interest level in that is incredibly high, but I I, I think the same amount of emphasis that's on this genealogical dna you know granted that's the latest right. and greatest so everybody's really excited about it especially since the you know the gsk was was solved with that but mm-hmm. i i think you're really onto something there where you you say you know what all we got to do is is make sure that everybody that's in prison for a felony is is in the d the the codis database and right. are, how many you know I, I it's hard to speculate but who knows how many of those say the last I've heard is like, there's like 250,000 homicide Mm
1: -hmm. cold
0: cases, right? 230 to 250,000. Right. How many of those do you think possibly could be solved?
1: Yeah. And the reality is most law enforcement agencies don't have the resources, certainly don't have the money to utilize investigative genetic genealogy. And, you know, CODIS is free. (laughs) You know, CODIS is run by your state crime lab. So, you know, we have a system in place. We just need to use it.
0: Yeah. And
1: one of the big gaps in modern day uh, gaps where people are being missed are, are people who get credit for time served and they never go to prison. So maybe they take a plea agreement and they, you know, they bump their crime down or maybe they already did time in jail while they were awaiting, you know, either trial or a plea date. And so they get credit for that time they already served and they get released and they never they never go anywhere to have their DNA taken. Uh And it's up for debate about who should collect the DNA. But if you're not in a rusty state, then I believe the DNA needs to be collected in the courtroom before you leave at the time of sentencing, because And a lot of jurisdictions, they're basically using the honor system. So somebody gets convicted of a qualifying offense where they owe DNA and they're ordered by the judge to provide a DNA sample, but they walk out of the courthouse, and they're told, oh, stop by the jail on your way out or stop by room 102 on your way out and give your DNA. And how many people actually do it? Not very many. And there's no verification process. There's no way to ensure that those people actually abide by those orders. And How
0: ironic is that, that you you have <laughs> <laughs> criminals that right. you're saying you're on the honor system to go down yeah. and give your DNA and they're just like, what? Screw that. Right.
1: right. And, you know, the other issue with lawfully owed DNA is that, you know, in your in, I guess, common sense might make you say, well, we should really address the people that are convicted of rapes and murders, because those are the people that are probably going to hit to the cold cases. That's actually not true. If you look at statistics and you look at statistics on CODIS hits, the majority of people who hit to a homicide or a sexual assault case, their DNA was collected as the result of a of a nonviolent qualifying offense, usually a drug case, a burglary, or some other property crime. Those are the, the reasons people's DNA is being collected and putting in put into CODIS. They are hitting to the rapes and homicides.
0: And why so, do you think that is?
1: Well, because I mean, criminals don't just operate in a vacuum. They commit all kinds of crimes. You know, there's a spectrum, and you're much more likely to get caught for a burglary or some kind of property crime or a drug possession charge than you are for committing a, a violent crime. And yeah. they're more prolific. You might commit, you know, the property crime a hundred times, but you might only commit the sexual assault once or twice or the homicide, you know, once. You know what I'm saying? So, there's more opportunity right. to get caught, I think, for those property crimes.
0: Yeah. Well, we can go round and round with this, but I find it amazing that we create all these laws, and then for one reason or another, a lot of them just aren't even. Um, we don't even uphold mm-hmm. them, and uh, we definitely don't prosecute them the way we should. And and the worst part about it is the recurring victims. Mm-hmm. For example, here in, in Utah, there was a, a, a crime scene investigator that uh, was telling me that they had caught a guy that had committed a rape and they took his DNA and they submitted it. Now, you know, in order to get that match with the actual rape, you have to have a reference sample. And that reference sample they submitted to the lab and it took like nine months to get the results mm-hmm. back. Well, in that nine months, they had they, this guy had gone out and committed three more mm-hmm. rapes and so if you were one of those additional three rapes right. you know how would you feel when you're like they caught this guy right. why, why why did it take so long mm-hmm. to get the match back and and get him off the street because like you said you know these guys if they're committing one crime then more than likely they're committing more yeah. and oh. I, I, you know a lot of times they can be more heinous than, than what they're actually caught for. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's really unfortunate. Yeah. But we definitely, yeah, you know, need to get uh, more resources. And and sadly, it seems that one of the first places that politicians look to cut, you know, to, to match their budget, they cut it from law enforcement and from critical services like uh, the crime lab.
1: Yeah, which is really unfortunate. The case that I talk about in the book was a case that addresses this, this very issue. And and this was one of the cases that that I really stumbled across, I would say, early on, where I first started to recognize, this is actually an issue, this issue of these, you know, really bad guys that are not in the database, because, you know, myself as a detective, prior to this, I assumed that, oh, I mean, if you went to prison, Uh, you're a convicted rapist, you're a level three sex offender, you're a serial killer. Of course, your DNA is in the database. I mean, isn't that why we have a database? And then, you know, I quickly learned that's not always the case. And so this was a, a situation where I was actually investigating a cold case back in 2011. And I was speaking to someone at our State Department of Corrections about this particular case I was working on. And we were discussing our sexually violent predator island so we have we have an island in washington state where there is a a place called the special commitment center and it houses i don't know how many out there currently but i think since it opened they've had over 400 people be committed there and it's and they are they are called sexually violent predators and these are individuals that have committed usually multiple sex crimes They're deemed too dangerous to be released. The state basically files a case against them, a sexually violent predator case, and it's a civil process. Uh, And if they're found to meet the standard or the criteria as a sexually violent predator, they're detained out at this facility indefinitely. And we started talking about the population out there at McNeil Island, and I asked the question, is everybody out there at McNeil in CODIS? Because, you know, I was thinking it's kind of a dumb question to even ask, right? Like, these are, <laughs> these are the worst sex offenders in our state. They're too dangerous to be released into the community after serving their prison sentence. I'm probably, you know, probably stupid to even ask this question. And the response I got was, not sure about that. We'll look into it. And then I quickly learned that there were over 40 sexually violent predators out at this island who had never provided a DNA sample. And some of them had been out there since the early 1990s when the place opened. So that was really eye opening to me. But also it kind of lit a fire under me because I'm like, holy crap. I mean, these guys and I would start reading their histories and reading while they were, you know, why they were there and looking up their convictions and I mean, it was just it was horrifying when I would you know, read through what they had done and what their histories would look like. And so I'm thinking, well, we have to be sitting on a gold mine out here because these guys are probably responsible for some cold cases.
0: Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.